Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Peffley, and I teach in the philosophy department. I'm Anne-Marie Koistra. I teach in the history department. And today we're going to be joined by Marian Larson, who teaches in the English department. And we're going to talk about Julian of Norwich and her revelations. Thanks for joining us. We have Marian Larson with us today. Hello. And uh, I know at an earlier point this week, you said you didn't really want to talk about Julian, but <laughs> I now do. you have notes. I do have notes. So do you want to, for the sake of our li- listeners, remind us what um, humanity students will be reading about when they read Julian's Revelations? Uh, yeah, so Julian of Norwich. <laughs> um, Deep breath. Yeah, I have to say she she might be one of the most interesting people we're going to be encountering mm-hmm. this semester. Um, there's a lot we don't know about her. I uh, re-examined the introduction to our book sure. recently, and uh, we, uh, yeah, there's a lot we don't know about her. We uh, sounds like scholars assume that she was probably fairly well off because okay. she had the the luxury of being able to spend time reflecting on her life. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that she was a deeply, deeply, deeply religious person. Um, we also know that she had a really intense prayer life. And uh, what we're going to be reading is the result of her, it is writing that she engaged in after she'd had a, uh, a really severe illness mm-hmm. that almost led to her death. And then she had um, several visions, basically, uh, visions of Christ, visions of our relationship with God, and she uh, wrote reflections on those. And actually, she wrote, she wrote these reflections kind of at two different times in her life, separated by many years. So we're going to, for the first day, we're going to be reading um, some chunks from uh, the shorter version of this. And then uh, several years later, after she'd had a chance to really recall these memories more and meditate on them, she wrote an expanded version. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be reading the pieces of that that are, that are new, that, that she hadn't written about in the first version. Mm-hmm. Um, she reflects on a lot on uh, the role that suffering plays Mm -hmm. in our spiritual lives, um, the suffering that Christ experienced on our behalf. And ultimately, I think if she were here, she would say that the main thing she wants to communicate to people is the depth of God's love for us Um, over and over and over again. That's what she keeps coming back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, we all, well, Marion and I both brought our books. And so I'll just read a little quote um, from one of the revelations. This is the short text. And she says, It is God's wish that we should place most reliance on liking and love. I kind of like that even. For love makes God's power and wisdom very gentle to us, just as through his generosity, God forgives our sin when we repent. So he wants us to forget our sin and all our depression, and all our doubtful fear. So along with that love is also that emphasis on forgiveness Mm -hmm. and actually forgetting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So, oh, go ahead, Carrie. Um, I was going to ask, so you've just revisited this, and this 
Last time we taught this was two years ago is the first time any of us had read or taught this text. So upon reading it a second time, what sort of additional epiphanies, what what really stuck out to you? Um, I, I, I think that the, the theme of love mm-hmm. came out, came across to me even more strongly than it had two years ago when we first taught mm-hmm. it. Um, and uh, two years ago when we first taught it, I, uh, to be honest, <laughs> I, I did feel a little uncomfortable with some of the things that she says at the very beginning, mm-hmm. um, where she makes it clear that she prayed earnestly, uh, asking that God would give her an illness that would take her almost to the point of death, death. that God would help her also in a in the fullest way possible, be able to imagine and even feel what Christ's suffering on our behalf might have been mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. And that that felt a little weird and morbid to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does say those things. But then in revisiting this yesterday and noticing how she unpacks those requests mm-hmm. um, and what she does with it, she doesn't dwell on the pain and suffering she focuses on how much Christ loved us, how much uh, the Trinity loves us, mm-hmm. um, and the suffering and the near-death experience she had mm-hmm. is what enabled her to not just intellectually appreciate that, but in an it literally in an embodied, literal, right. emotional, and physical way, um, helped her to appreciate it. And I, I really. In, enjoyed is the wrong word. Um, I, I I feel like she she had a lot of really deep insights that mm-hmm. are worth considering. Mm-hmm. Right, and I would say too, um, uh, I was revisiting also the text uh, because I have to lecture on this, I guess, for a few minutes right. next week. Right, and so it was interesting to read um, one scholar talking about how this imagination or this um, practice of imagining what Christ's death was like was very much part of the meditation literature of her time um, that they talked about the imitatio Christi. Mm-hmm. How's my Latin there, Carrie? Very good. Very good. Uh, where it's urging the faithful to enter deeply, and a lot of this was by then way of imagination, into scenes of Christ's passion and death with the idea that by doing so, it would bring about a call for repentance and identification with Christ's suffering, but then also a desire to devote oneself more fully to God. And what's interesting, though, about Julian is that she really doesn't experience that suffering as wrath, but as the love. In a, in a way, like the love refutes the wrath. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a very interesting experience. Go yeah, ahead, well, and sort of like a paradox. One of the things that um, I really like about Julian, but can make her difficult to read the first time through is this sort of the tension that runs mm-hmm. through and not just with this love and wrath, mm-hmm. because that's one or love and suffering, mm-hmm. um, but also, right, the church's official stance on women mm-hmm. is that God can't really, women shouldn't be um teaching or preaching, but for some reason, God is speaking to her, a woman. And it seems like salvation is more particularized, but 
she's having visions of everyone being saved and holding all of these things in tension all the time, um, that her visions don't lead her to absolute conclusions, but rather to embracing these sort of tensions. Well, and then speaking of those tensions, on the one hand, she does talk about Judgment Day mm-hmm. several times. She talks about... Um, how sin uh, gets in the way of our relationship with God, mm-hmm. but she doesn't talk about Judgment Day as I- in the way that I would expect. Well, in the way that many Christians do, right. right? So she doesn't focus on, wow, we need to be afraid of judgment, or we need to deep down be happy that those heathen <laughs> are going to uh, be judged. I, I think about the image of uh, the carving above the church door that Wayne Rosa showed us in his medieval art lecture on Mm -hmm. Wednesday, the one that shows on the left-hand side, here are the souls of the damned, and on the right-hand side, here are the souls of the saved. And the one of the images that that Wayne often focuses on is uh, we've got this, this large hand that looks almost like you know those claw machines, yeah. in, like in uh, in Toy Story, the claw, the claw, um, has grabbed someone's head and is pulling them up to be judged. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to be something to really get the people attending church, you better sober up right. and you better really be careful. Right. But thinking about the judgment um, leads Julian over and over again to be overwhelmed by how much God loves us. And how even our sin actually provided Christ with the opportunity to show the depth of his love for us and uh, provided God the Father with the opportunity to send Christ in order to show God's love mm-hmm. for us. And that's very, very different than saying Christ had to come because God is angry at sin or because mm-hmm. God's God's divine justice requires it. No, Christ came um, because of his love for us, mm-hmm. um, but which is also attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because I was just thinking, yeah, that the way that you're describing atonement. Yes. Actually seems very different from the five sort of models we looked at earlier this semester out of the Olson mm-hmm. book, mm-hmm. where even though love is certainly implied, like that doesn't really come through strongly in, say, the Christus Victor um, yeah. image. Right, right, right. 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 Instead, or it's, the, it's, yeah. or I mean, I mean, it's very legalistic or militaristic we've mm-hmm. talked about. Yep. And here we have Julian who is not part of the elite. She doesn't speak Latin. She mm-hmm. doesn't know how to write in Latin, which is the official language of the church. And she's willing to say, this is another way to look at what Christ and God the Father are doing mm-hmm. in this action, that it is, again, less judgment, although there certainly is that, mm-hmm. but it is overwhelmingly like, yeah, it's an opportunity for Christ to really show us how much love Right, Christ right. has. For it's us. much more like her theory of atonement is kind of close to Abelard's. Okay, this yeah. sort of moral exemplar. It's mm-hmm. all about showing Christ's love. Right, and and I, I think about the way Olson talks about that that version, and Olson does make the point that it's not just setting an example; it is setting an example that has a deep, deep, deep impact on us mm-hmm. spiritually and emotionally and gets us to think about and appreciate, mm-hmm. uh, appreciate is too weak a word, 
um, identify with mm-hmm. uh, Christ's suffering as uh, as love for us, mm-hmm. and that um, mm-hmm. yeah. Right, and it's that love that makes that transformation in us possible. Yes. Right? It's the love that changes us. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's that other part, too, where um, even Aquinas talks about how love is the, the key virtue, right? Because mm-hmm. love is what draws us to God, whereas reason is our attempt to bring God down to us, right? In some ways. Am I, like, misinterpreting that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Like, I've, eh, no- eh, I've eh. never thought of Aquinas in that way, but, yeah, I mean, certainly – for well and I, I would maybe even make that claim like a little bit stronger and say lo- passion like the mm-hmm. passions for aquinas drive us to do everything like mm-hmm. we're not even going to be virtuous on earth without mm-hmm. passions we need that that a fixed emotion to be driven to do anything so reason is never enough yeah um it's always going to be accompanied by these passions joy love i feel like though these medievalists really I mean, the love thing does, I mean, because even Dante, the the last tier, yeah, right, in purgatory is the love misdirected, mm-hmm. which is lust, right? Yeah. Like that, that's the closest you get to heaven is the misdirection of that's the That's right. You've got the love. It's just maybe a little bit too much yeah. and misdirected. I just mm-hmm. think that's quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever noticed that before. So mm. yeah. yeah, there it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and the other thing that's very striking about Julian that can be a little unsettling at first is the use of mother imagery yes. in the text. Oh, and That's Marian's, what my page of notes Mar- in front Marian of me has notes. is largely focusing on. I know on. some of you will find that very surprising that Marion has come prepared with a page of types. <laughs> yeah, what notes. can I say? So, uh, I, yes, I, one of the things that uh, the last time we taught this book, one of the things that students frequently commented on and some of them were really drawn to and others were disturbed by are some of the metaphors that Julian uses in talking about uh, especially Christ's relationship to us. Um, she use, she actually uses a whole bunch of metaphors. Several of them are ones that that feel familiar to us mm-hmm. or at least on the face of it don't sound unusual. For example, uh, she talks, some of her metaphors for God are uh, either for God generally or for Christ specifically, our brother, our foundation, our teacher, our goal, our prize, father, Lord, spouse, uh, substance. Um, a couple of those are ones that uh, I never studied in Sunday school that might, <laughs> uh, that might not have come up, but several of them sound like, oh, yeah. I heard that, heard that, heard Mm -hmm. that. But she also uses some less familiar ones. So near the beginning of the reading that we'll be doing the first day on Julian, uh, here's how she describes Christ. She describes him as being our clothing. She says, he is our clothing, wrapping and enveloping us for love, embracing us and guiding us in all things, hanging about us in tender love. And I love that idea of Christ being like our clothing. and then also what she dwells on for several pages in the longer section, the part we'll be reading on our last day, is she talks about Christ as our mother. I'll just read a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, uh, our Savior is our true mother in whom we are eternally born and by whom we shall always be enclosed. Uh, Jesus Christ is our true mother. We have our being from him where the ground of motherhood begins with all the sweet protection of love. And then a few pages later, she says uh, that Christ's work for us 
began as he was willing to become incarnate by developing in Mary's womb. Uh Um, And she, she says, our great God was raised in this humble place, that is Mary's womb, and dressed himself in our poor flesh to do the service and duties of motherhood in every way. So that's super interesting. He allows himself to be mothered so that he then can become mm-hmm. our mother. Um, the mother's service is the closest, the most helpful, and the most sure, for it is the most faithful. And then later, in thinking more about, well, what do mothers do? So there's the connection with development in the womb and the womb as being a place of protection and uh, about the most intimate connection that someone could have with a mother. But then uh, uh, he... Uh, she t- also talks about uh, about laboring, um, as in birth pangs. Um, Christ sustains us within himself in love, and Christ was in labor for the full mm-hmm. time until he suffered the sharpest pangs and the most grievous sufferings. And then she reflects on, well, what else do mothers do? Mothers provide sustenance for their mm-hmm, infants. Right. Um, as a nursing mother feeds her children, so Christ feeds us with his body and blood. Um, and so I, one of the things that Julian prompted me to think about previously uh, is, well, Julian reminded me that she's not the one who created this idea of God being like our mother. Right. Um, there are biblical metaphors for God that Absolutely. are used in scripture. Um, Isaiah, for example, uh, in three different ways, uh, the book of Isaiah talks about uh, God as being uh, like a midwife who mm-hmm. delivers a baby. God is also described as being uh, like a woman in labor and uh, according to Lauren Winner, who wrote a book recently called Wearing God, and the subtitle is something like um, Biblical Metaphors for God that we don't talk about often enough. Uh-huh. I mean, that's, oh, that's, our, that's, that's, that's the gist of the title. And she says that uh, the Hebrew in Isaiah, uh, when God is talking about God's self as a woman in labor uses really vivid words, says, I will gasp and pant. And the English translation then says, I will cry out. And Lauren Winter says that's better translated as groan or bellow, sure. like an animal in pain. Right. Um, and so then she reflects more on, okay, so that's, that's a metaphor that scripture uses what do metaphors invite us to do? Metaphors put together two things that have some aspects in common as well as some aspects that are not in common, and they invite us to reflect on the commonality as much as mm-hmm. we can. So that's <clears throat> what she does in her book. She says uh, that uh, just as a woman in labor has to learn to experience the pain, has to go with the pain Mm -hmm. in order for the delivery to happen. So God chooses to participate in the work of our new creation in a way that doesn't fight the pain, but works from within the pain. And I I think that's hugely a connection with Julian's reflection Mm -hmm. 
on uh, on suffering. Um, Lauren Winner also talks about laboring as an experience of strength and power, as well as one of bodily vulnerability. And, and so she suggests that maybe we need to expand our notion of what it means to say that God is strong or that mm -hmm. God is powerful. If we use metaphors, only metaphors like fortress or king or lord, we think about strength as being like uh, a bunker right. <laughs> or, uh, or, or a machine gun mm -hmm. or a tank or something. But if we think of strength also as demonstrated in a woman in labor, mm -hmm. um, then we think that strength entails enduring a willingness mm -hmm. to be vulnerable, um, to be open to pain and to risk and then that's more like Jesus in his agonizing prayer right. in Gethsemane, that that's an example of God's strength, strength. also, of God's um, motherly strength, uh, which I, I think is really, I could go, honestly, I could go on and on I know. about this one, but. <laughs> but I think I, when it's, it's very interesting, because of course, as you're talking through not only what you are rereading in Julian, but then reading this Lauren Winter book, I feel the lament of having lost those metaphors mm -hmm. and that it's so shocking to students, at least some students, when we do use things like mother right. or even spouse and um, how unfortunate that is because, I mean, even my mother, who was a very conservative sort of product of the 1950s, I remember as a little kid asking her, like, well, is God a man? And she's mm -hmm. like, no, God is spirit. God mm -hmm. is not man or woman. And yet the metaphors, as you mentioned, Marianne, are so steeped in the sort of bunker strength or mm -hmm. even father and appropriately so, but like it then makes this other part of the metaphor just unfortunately lost, I think, a little well, bit. Well, right. And uh, I've actually given, a, over the years, given a lot of thought to the use of biblical metaphors. Mm -hmm. And many biblical scholars who talk about this make the point that uh, if we use a metaphor so too often, we forget that it's a, a, metaphor. a metaphor. We forget that it's an example or a figure of mm -hmm. speech. Um, and we start acting as if, I mean, I think we know that literally God is not a man. Right. <laughs> literally God is not our physical father. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, of course it's the case that there are many ways in which our reflections on fatherhood or on fathers we have known or uh, men that we have known who have demonstrated wonderful qualities of fatherhood, mm -hmm. that definitely helps us understand better um, what God is like and how God relates to us. But there's a small step from that to acting as if, if God is like our father, then maybe in some ways, fa and saying a father is like God, okay. <laughs> but there's a tiny step from there to suggesting that we should have a high and exalted way of thinking about our own fathers or our own men. Sure. And mm -hmm. so, and, and we, we miss out on the opportunity to think in broader ways about God's relationship to us. And I, I think again of what Julian does by, um, she also uses the father language, which she Absolutely. doesn't, she doesn't dwell on that, I think, because that's mm -hmm. used so commonly that there's no point in dwelling on it. Right. She dwells on the mother language because that, uh, that felt so emotionally meaningful to her 
and because it's something that doesn't get talked about as much. So I, I wouldn't say we should replace. No. But, and, and nor is she saying that, but we should certainly expand being inspired by her, but also remembering that scripture all, she didn't just make this up. Mm-hmm. Scripture right. uses that. Uh, Jesus himself, um, also uses, uh, compares himself, I think this is in Matthew, he compares himself to, he says, I'm like a mother hen, and what I would like to do is gather uh, gather my chicks under my mm-hmm. wings so that I can nurture them and keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And I know that the feminine metaphors for God in Scripture, Old and New Testament, um, don't pop up as often, but they but they are there. Mm-hmm. And Julian reminds me of that and prompts me to want to think more about that and what that might mean. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Julian is part of, and she's the only one really that we read in the West, who is part of this mystical tradition. And the mystics are all going to emphasize this this thing that is biblical metaphor, because God can't be described affirmatively by any words that we have. And so the entire scriptural tradition is all due to our creaturely limitations. Mm -hmm. And so understanding, okay, we need to understand this about God. And so this mother metaphor works really, really well. This birthing metaphor works really well. This protector metaphor works really well. But none of those are absolute. Those are ways to help us as creatures, as finite, understand this infinite, perfect, immutable being. Right, right. The substance. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, and I think this is what makes her still so widely appealing to read because she is in some ways an ordinary person who Mm -hmm. has an extraordinary experience Mm -hmm. and she is um she has enough authority or she feels she has she has enough authority to even tell those tell of that extraordinary experience and she does it in english which apparently makes her one of the first sort of English women of letters, right. so to speak. So she's really important, not only in terms of her mystical experience of God, which obviously is a big deal, but also for being one of the first persons to write in the vernacular mm-hmm. and to um, give us something in the English language that is also, I mean, I love that you brought up the clothing imagery. Mm-hmm. I mean, the hazelnut. I mean, she writes in accessible mm-hmm. images, I think, even for people of today. So yeah. I love that about mm-hmm. her too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what else do we want to say about Julian? Oh. Well, I wondered you, I mean, you have been talking about Anne-Marie, how excited you are about Julian and about her. She wasn't a nun. No. Uh, she was, she was something else. Yes. She was an anchorite. So an anchorite was a person who, um, after being examined by a, um, higher up in the church to make sure she had enough funds, if she was, um, sane and so on and so forth, would actually be, um, living in an attached sort of residency to the church. They basically built a room that was attached to the church um, so that the person who lived within these walls could really devote herself to a life of prayer and contemplation. Apparently, um, there is a reconstruction of Julian's anchorage. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, So um, that shows that there were three holes or three sort of passages um, one was for the passage of food and waste. One was for her to greet um, people who came to her on pilgrimage. Um, there were definitely famous people who came and sought out her teachings. And then the other one was so that she could um, watch the Eucharist being um, done. And so this was 
she lived, I mean, it was a profoundly solitary right, life, right. which is fascinating. And those three holes were her only access to the outside that world. That is correct. Mm-hmm. So this would be like having been a hermit. Mm-hmm. It's like being a hermit, right. only you don't have to go out into the wilderness. Right. Um, yep. Exactly. It's a, it is. sort of a later the version. Medieval. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Well, and that's that's very interesting. Um, the other thing to note, too, that she is writing about suffering and um, experiencing suffering in a, a century of profound suffering, right? So I'm not the medievalist here, but I did do a little research. So um, according to my research, Carrie, stop me if you think this is wrong. 14th century, we've got um, rebellions mm-hmm. in England. We've got war with France. Mm-hmm. And then we've got several cycles of the Black Death. Yes. No, that's all correct. It's a so, tumultuous century. It's a tumultuous, you know, and so the fact that she is in the midst of suffering, seeking to experience suffering more and as a way to experience Christ's profound love, I keep mm-hmm. using the word profound, that is also kind of interesting too. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, your comment about the Black Death mm-hmm. also reminded me that this is during a time when uh, no one understood what caused diseases right. to be spread. And if you don't understand what causes disease to be spread, but you have a horrible, very contagious disease mm-hmm. wiping out whole families, whole uh, whole communities, literally, then you have people in fear trying to keep that from happening to them and trying to explain, well, where is God in this? Mm -hmm. Um, How can we explain what causes it to happen? And most frequently, the answer is God is judging you because Mm -hmm. of your sin. Um, God is judging you. God is judging you because of your sin, your sin, your sin. And you can see Julian being very aware of sin and being very aware of judgment, but that's not where she takes things. Um, she takes things much more towards God's uh, tender, mm-hmm. yeah, God's God's tender concern yes. and care for us, God's provision for us, um, God's God's desire to be as close to us as we will allow God to be um, through prayer, uh, even through suffering. Mm-hmm. Right, which leads her to her sort of famous conclusion that everybody knows, right, that all will be well. Mm-hmm. In spite of all of this, all will mm-hmm. be well. Um, I want to make sure I um, know what Marion um, is reading aside from Lauren Winner. <laughs> What's on your um, bedside table? Well, I yesterday finished reading Margaret Atwood's newest book, The Testaments, which is a uh, sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. And if you liked Handmaid's Tale, you're going to love The Testaments. Okay. Um, I just finished that. Uh, I just started reading. Uh, I'm reading two books right now for fun. One is uh, by the travel writer Bill Bryson. Oh, yeah. His newest book is called The Body, um, which is just fascinating. And then I'm also reading, I don't remember the author's name, came out a few years ago. It's called The Known World. Um, and I won a Pulitzer, I want to say, ten, 10 or so years ago. And it's set during antebellum times, that is pre-Civil War times. Um, and there are some of the characters in this book are African Americans who own slaves mm. themselves. And so there's some very interesting complexities to slaveholding and Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything new on your nightstand, Carrie? Uh, there is something new, though I haven't started reading it yet. Um, it's a collection of essays by, so I'm about to finish Fever Pitch and about to start this collection of essays 
um, called Winesburg, Ohio. Oh, oh yes. that's Sherwood Love, Anderson. Yeah, Love Sherwood I Anderson, which I had fan. never read. Yeah. And actually, Juan Hernandez oh, yeah. um, gave it to me because he was like, you're from Ohio. You oh, should yeah. read this author from Ohio. <laughs> I'm not even from oh, Ohio, <laughs> and I enjoyed it. And so I actually did start. I made it through the, f- the yeah. first essay, which is really, really interesting. Yeah. So, so far, so good. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm reading... Oh, the Eye and the Door, does that sound right, Sam, as far as the second book in the trilogy of the regeneration? And, well, you, nobody knows. But it's it's interesting. Let's just mm. put it that way. It's very interesting. Cool. Well, um, you've spent another 20 minutes or so listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.